Americans came looking for opportunity with a drive to succeed in a land of freedom from oppressive ancient regimes. The result was the creation of unprecedented wealth and a people preoccupied with the business of the day. Why should America mix itself up in a brutal war between the old world's royal powers? A few outward-looking Americans, though, believed that sooner or later their nation would be drawn into the fight. At the dawn of the modern age, no country remained an island. Oceans that had once seemed insurmountable barriers could now be crossed in a matter of days. America's growing wealth depended on the free movement of goods to trading partners worldwide. The foreign war would soon strangle world commerce, which was the lifeblood of American growth. Already an industrial giant, America was racing toward what many recognized would prove to be a decisive hemispheric shift in global affairs. A few loud voices predicted the United States would have no choice but to fight. Although their warnings went largely unheeded in government circles, a group of determined 18, 19, and 20-year-old boys decided they would try to do something about the situation. Mostly college students from Yale University, they were the sons of America's early 20th century aristocracy. One a Rockefeller, one whose father headed the Union Pacific Railroad Empire, another J.P. Morgan's partner. Others traced their roots to the Mayflower. Several counted friends and relatives among presidents and statesmen, and some were famed collegiate athletes. All were fabulously wealthy. Leading members of the group included Bob Lovett, Truby Davison, Di Gates, Croc Ingalls, Kenny McLeish, and Al Sturdivant. Despite their youth, they had grown up in a time when their elite position brought with it special responsibilities that may seem distant to us today. They were schooled in heroism, made ready as schoolboys for leadership and sacrifice, even before their nation called upon them. Fascinated by the new sport of motorized flight and dimly aware of its growing military importance, they decided to create their own flying militia. In total, 28 young men would pioneer military aviation on their own initiative and with their families' immense private resources, forming the first Yale unit, what began as a college aero club, becoming the originating squadron of the U.S. Naval Air Reserve. From there, many of these boys emerged as war heroes and all served as leaders in America's entry into a new dimension. Their every move caught the attention of a nation and inspired other young men across the country to follow their lead. For a military ill-prepared to fight in the air, the Millionaire's Unit, as a fascinated press dubbed the squadron, provided the nucleus of the burgeoning Navy Air Corps. Although some were still just teens, all would become officers, in some instances with thousands of men under their command. Most faced death daily in the battle for Europe. One planned the nation's first strategic bomber force and headed its first night bomber wing. Another became the Navy's only air ace of the war. A few would never return. When America finally went to war, Admiral William Sims, commander of the U.S. Navy in Europe during the First World War, credited them as 20th century Paul Revere's. Following the armistice, a grateful nation commended their foresight and courage. 
The rest of the world marveled. One of the finest and largest air services had grown out of what amounted to little more than a summer camp hosted by a group of college sophomores. Those who returned home lost neither their love of flying nor their belief in its crucial role in any future military conflict. Members of the unit continued to lead in the dawning years of civilian aviation and throughout the interwar years of waning military aerial power. Their heroism and initiative during the First World War was not forgotten. Later, when America entered into World War II, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt recalled nearly all of the former flyers to service. He was tapping old friends and comrades. He had come to know them well even before the First World War, when he was a young assistant secretary of the Navy. After nearly 25 years on an isolationist, peacetime military footing, they again faced the complex and daunting task of creating a modern air force capable of knocking down a far better prepared foe. Their numbers during the Second World War included the undersecretaries who ran the Army and Navy Air Corps and the military commanders of the Pacific Air Transport, the vital Pearl Harbor Naval Air Station, carrier groups, and numerous other crucial aviation facilities. Before the war's end, the boys who had fought just to fly for their country in 1916 came to rule the world's skies. In post-war years, one of them became a thoughtful, respected Cold War-era Secretary of Defense, convinced of the importance of aerial power for national security. That conviction was based on experience. As a 21-year-old, he had witnessed that power in 1918, becoming the first man in American uniform to fly in bombing raids over the Western Front. What he learned on those early missions stamped U.S. military policy from the massive bombing raids over Europe today. In war and out, the men of the 1st Yale unit carried forward the life of service, personal sacrifice, and leadership for which they had been groomed. That life did not result by accident. Today, relatively few young Americans from comparable backgrounds would consider military service or self-sacrificing service of any kind as an obligation that comes with the privileges that define their lives. That marks a major change in the nature of America's elite and its national leadership. In their day, the members of the first Yale unit were prepared to make the greatest sacrifice and were envied for their opportunity to serve and lead the way into battle. Those privileged to lead emerged from an increasingly deep-rooted national establishment composed of church, private preparatory schools and colleges, clubs, business and family networks, mountain and seaside vacation resorts, and country estates. At one level, it was extremely undemocratic. Its doors were closed to women, except as wives and mothers, and it fenced out nearly all Jews, Catholics, and recent immigrants, as well as all Asian, Native, and African Americans. Unlike the old world aristocracies, within those sweeping restrictions, lack of blue-blooded family heritage did not necessarily block an otherwise exceptional young man's rise within that system. Nor did a plutocratic father's name assure an unremarkable son's success. Absence of wealth, however, was an absolute barrier. Membership in the elite was not for the faint of heart in any case. It demanded conformity to unwritten rules. Much of a young man's education was devoted to learning those rules. 
their enforcement could be violent and physically and emotionally bullying. As he made his way, many eyes kept close watch over his progress. And the upper crust world in which he moved was so self-enclosed at times as to become inbred. Marriages were not arranged, but they nonetheless possessed a royal element of the conjoining of bloodlines for the purposes of doing business, often in the form of heirs and heiresses. Families were quite clear about the choices that a young son or daughter should make. For those living amid the imported ancient trappings of aristocratic Europe, especially England, which surrounded the emerging ruling class, for truly the interlocking wasp families and fortunes that came to the fore in the last years of the 19th century and the first years of the 20th century formed the American ruling class, one forged steel democratic principle governed all those who expected to take their share in that class's leadership privilege. They had to give of themselves. They had to be ready to sacrifice for their country and to deliver their expertise and money when called upon to serve America in time of war and, if needed, to ante up their lives and, far more painful, those of their own children when duty required. Before self-betterment came self-sacrifice. In their rigorously classical prep school studies, all had read Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War. Thucydides wrote that Pericles told the Athenian assembly during his funeral oration that the greatest courage in war is shown by those men who act with the most to lose, who would feel the change most if trouble befell them. These Abrahams of the New World did not hesitate to sacrifice their own Isaacs for what they believed was their divinely sanctioned mission to lead their growing nation. This amalgam of selective institutions and a close-knit world of privileged families that inculcated in their sons a sense of sacrificial mission crafted an increasingly stable leadership coterie that could sustain...